Well, good morning. Uh, a couple of things uh, that would be fun to share. One, uh, back in February, we as a congregation came together with some others in our community and we put together some meals to uh, feed starving children. That was the organization we were working with. We did 147,700 and some meals. And uh, we just got news back recently that those meals, the meals that, that we prepared, were sent to starving children and families uh, in Jamaica. You may not know this, but uh, Jamaica has been suffering extreme poverty just in recent years. And so uh, our meals have or are being eaten, and uh, we are thankful for that. Uh, it's a blessing when we get to serve in the name of Jesus, and it just it's wonderful to know that those meals are in the hands of people who need them. Am I right? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very cool. And then one more thing. Uh, you may have been here yesterday. Um, we had the egg extravaganza. It was definitely that. It, we, had, we conservatively guesstimate we had 1,300 people here yesterday. So <laughs> it was, uh, we, we hope we bless the families and the children who came. Um, I mentioned in the first service, you know, we only had uh, enough eggs for each child to have one. That's a joke. But uh, it seemed like everybody had fun. There was cotton candy and snow cones and donkeys to pet. Uh, these donkeys were descended from the donkey that Jesus rode on. <laughs> I'm kidding. But uh, it was a great day. So we're thankful. Thank you, thank you to all of you who volunteered and helped make that, uh, that event happen yesterday. It was just wonderful. Uh, let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for the time to gather in this room and to sing your praises, to pray to you, to talk to you, to ask you to work in our lives. And uh, we pray, God, that we would not waste this time that we have together this morning, but that, in fact, we would hear from you. So teach us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Well, uh, my name is Dwayne Corey. I'm one of the pastors here at Deer Creek Church. Uh, there is a tradition that's been around really now for several thousand years, a tradition that happens at Easter. Uh, somebody will say Christ or Jesus Christ is risen and people will respond back by saying he is risen indeed. Uh, you might be visiting this morning. A lot of folks we know are and they're kind of just checking things out and you may or may not know what you think about God or about Jesus or about resurrections or things of that nature. Feel free to just be a spectator. We're just delighted you are here with us. Uh, for this, uh, this time. But if you are a follower of Jesus, if that's something you've already made that determination, you've entered into a relationship with Jesus, I'm going to say that phrase, Jesus Christ is risen, and then I want you to respond back uh, appropriately with that, that response. He is risen indeed. Are you ready? Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. There you go. We are very, as I said, very honored to have all of you gathered with us for an Easter celebration. Easter, of course, is the day when followers of Jesus celebrate the unusual fact, not that Jesus died, because we all die, but the fact that he didn't stay dead. That's what we celebrate. Uh, and by not staying dead, we understand too that Jesus paid for our sin, our brokenness, that stuff in us that's not good and, and not right. And what's more, he conquered death. Jesus demonstrated that he is the one who is going to one day fix everything, everything that's broken, everything that's wrong. 
The day will come when Jesus will bring justice to this earth and sin and evil will be done away with altogether. And so this is why followers of Jesus have hope, especially at this time of year, but actually all year long, we always should have hope. Uh, there's an Old Testament author, a psalmist, wrote songs, actually, or what, or what these are. Uh, and uh, the psalmist wrote these words. He said, as for me, I will always have hope. Always. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous deeds, of your saving acts all day long, though I know not how to relate them all. Why? Because there are too many to relate. There are so many times when God brings deliverance, brings salvation, brings good even out of bad. The psalmist can't relate them all. There's a prophet in the Old Testament. His name is Isaiah, and he spoke many prophecies hundreds and hundreds of years before the time that Jesus showed up on the planet. Uh, one of the things that uh, Isaiah said about hope, he said, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. All of that is the result of hoping in the one true God. You see, hope is something that all people need. Uh, hope is something that human beings really can't live without. We need it like we need oxygen. Uh, when we're young, we kind of hope recreationally. You know, I hope I pass this test. Uh, I hope I make the team. I hope the team wins this game. I hope that he or she will say yes if I ask them out kind of a thing. Uh, we get a little older and our hopes get bigger. You know, I hope I get this job. I really need this job. I hope I find someone to love, someone maybe to marry. Uh, I hope that if we marry and, uh, and so I, I hope we'll have children. You get a little older and the hopes change still again. It's I hope we can get the kids out of the house. Uh, <laughs> You know, or as you get older, it's, I hope my health holds up, you know, or I, or I hope someday I'll be able to retire. Hopes change over the years. But I'll tell you one thing that doesn't change. And that is that if you live long enough, you will run into challenges. You will experience difficulty. Life will disappoint you because we live in a world that is broken. You know, the ideal job isn't so ideal, or you never find that person that you wanted to marry, or you get married, but it doesn't work out, or you aren't able to have kids as much as you, uh, yet as much as you want them, and, or you have kids, but something you did not foresee happens to one of them, or something terrible happens to you. And you wonder when something like that happens, is there anything really left to hope for? Is hoping pointless? Is there any hope that can fix the terrible stuff that happens in our lives or make some sense or some use of it? Is there an ultimate hope, a hope that gives life meaning? Is there a hope beyond just mere pie-in-the-sky kind of optimism, a hope that can stare life and tragedy and despair squarely in the face and not blink, not blink for a second? And, of course, that is the hope that the psalmist and the prophet Isaiah we're talking about. Uh, now, here's the thing. This man, Jesus, that we're talking about this morning haunts the human race because he says there is always a reason to hope. Always. He was quite convinced that precisely when things look the darkest from a human perspective, very often that is when God is going to work the most powerfully, the most surprisingly. 
Jesus expressed this unforgettably one day uh, in a way that left everybody who hears these words with a decision to make. And I want to share Jesus' words with you this morning. This is what Jesus said. He said, very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And then he spoke about the, the human condition kind of in general. He says, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Strange words. What exactly is Jesus saying? What is, it, what is he getting at here? Well, we can start at the physical level. That's a little more obvious. Imagine for a moment that you're the seed that Jesus is talking about. And one day you get thrown into a hole in the ground and then the ground gets shoveled over you and you're that little seed and you might just think to yourself, well, I, I guess it's all over. No air, no light, no sunshine, buried in the dirt, can't move, can't see. This is about as bad as it can get. I guess this is the end. But then a strange thing happens. A sort of miracle, actually. And we forget how miraculous it is because it happens every day, but it's still quite amazing. Uh, something we can't quite identify. We can only really describe it. Something high above the earth says to something deep within the soil and deep within the seed, rise up. And it does. A little stem shoots out of the seed to reach up towards the sky. A little root shoots out of that seed to get life and nourishment from the earth. And before you know it, what looked like the end turns out is just the beginning of something unimaginably wonderful. What looked like the worst thing to that little seed ended up being the very best thing that ever happened. For the seed wasn't buried or destroyed. It was just planted. And so often in the Bible, there are stories about God working in precisely this way. Story after story after story. I'll bet you know some of them. Uh, here's one. The people of Israel, they're wandering in the wilderness. God has delivered them out of Egypt. And uh, they were at one time slaves in Egypt. But they get out in the wilderness and they're not able to find any food. They're not able to find any water. Shelter is scarce. All of these things. And they become fearful that they're going to die in the wilderness. And so some of them start to say, well, it'd be better off to go back to Egypt, go back to that slavery. But all the while, God was about to plant this new people who would give hope to the entire world one day in a land that he had promised to give them. And he was going to give them food, provision, water, everything they needed, but he was going to do it one day at a time. I bet you know this story. There was a, a young man uh, who went out to fight a giant one day. What was that giant's name? Yeah. And we all do go up against giants of one sort or another, don't we? And we all kind of feel the impossibility of overcoming and defeating that giant that we face. Well, the same was true for David. Uh, I'm sure David in that moment was thinking, well, you might as well bury me now, right? You know, Because if my God doesn't show up, if my God doesn't fight for me, I don't have what it's going to take to defeat, to kill this giant. 
who was mocking God. There's another story. You might know this one. There's a strong, bright young man. His name is Joseph. And his brothers are angry at him. They're jealous of him. They sell him into slavery. And uh, Joseph gets thrown into a prison that belongs to the Pharaoh. He's been falsely accused. He hasn't done anything wrong. Uh, he is only a slave, however. And so he figures, well, this is it. I mean, my life, for, practically speaking, is, is over. But when Joseph is thinking that, that's right when God happens to be getting started in his story. If you know the story, God, through some just remarkable circumstances, raises him up to be the Pharaoh's prime minister, the Pharaoh's right-hand man. Who would have thought? There's a young woman named Esther. This is a great story, too. Uh, she thinks that she is about to be destroyed. A powerful man has succeeded in laying a plot to destroy all of the Jews in the kingdom of Persia. And it looks like he's won. It looks like his plot is going to unfold and come to the end that he intends it. But God is just getting started. Through remarkable circumstances, God is going to save Esther's life as well as the lives of all his people. And in the process, he's going to destroy the very enemies of Israel who are plotting Israel's destruction. It's a fantastic story uh, that is still remembered today. In fact, the Jews celebrate the remembrance of this story with the Feast of Purim. Um, now, shift gears. I wonder about you. You see, the thing about being planted is it feels exactly like being buried. It feels like the end, except often it's right then that God is working. When things look their darkest, God is often plotting something unimaginably wonderful. And this is why people who believe in God, this is why people who have experienced God working in their lives, people who follow Jesus, hold on to hope no matter what their circumstances. They know there's always reason to hope. They have learned that God is a God of hope. And so when dreams get dashed, when bad news comes or bad things happen, when seeds get buried, they know it's not the end. It's just planting time. And we all love stories of hope. We all do. Stories that end happily. At Easter time in the spring, when, the, when life creeps back up from the earth, when little seeds send up little shoots to reach up toward the sun, we love to think about things like the power of positive thinking, optimistic attitudes, never giving up. And we think, you know, maybe if I just approach the world with enough confidence enough boldness, enough positive thinking, good things will happen. Good things will come my way. Well, I want you to understand something. That is not what Jesus is saying. Not at all. He's not encouraging us to just have a positive mental outlook. He is first and foremost explaining what is about to happen to him unless a seed falls to the ground and dies. You see, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and he knows that he is going to die on a cross. In fact, truth be told, he has chosen to die on a cross. He believes if he dies on a cross, something terrible, but also something wonderful is going to happen. A great power will be released in the world. A great story will unfold that would not otherwise be told if he did not first die on a cross. 
In fact, regardless what you might think about Jesus or what you might think about God or what you might think about life after death or the supernatural, regardless what you think about any of those things, I would submit to you that Jesus is, Jesus was exactly right in what he says here in this passage that we've read. Think about this. If Jesus had lived somehow to a ripe old age, if he had died quietly and painlessly in his sleep as an elderly gentleman, he would have been forgotten centuries ago, like a hundred other wonderful teachers or gifted thinkers or compassionate servants. But instead, he died. Jesus even said that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He died. He chose to die on the cross. And his death on the cross, understand, changed everything. It literally did. Beginning with the cross itself. I mean, consider this. More graves, you can, you can go to any cemetery and check this out. Uh, more graves are marked by a cross than any other symbol. How ironic. Because the cross, of course, was simply a means of torture, brutal humiliation, execution, well, nobody in their right mind marks a grave with items of that nature. You know, you don't go to a cemetery and see graves marked with a guillotine or a hangman's noose or an electric chair. No, nobody does that for good reason. So why in the world would anybody mark a grave with a cross, for goodness sake? And the, the answer is, it's obvious. It's because of Jesus. You see, Jesus used the cross it's funny, the powers that be in Jesus' day thought that they were going to use the cross to stop Jesus. Uh, that, but Jesus decided instead that he would use the cross to show the human race what God is actually like. Jesus displayed the goodness of God. Jesus displayed the grace and the mercy of God. Jesus displayed the glory of God in this instrument of death called a cross. Jesus used the cross to show people the power of forgiveness over hate. He used the cross to show people the power of life over death. He used the cross to show people the enduring, irresistible strength of sacrificial, humble love, which is God's love. He suffered hate without hating back. He endured being mocked without mocking in return. He embraced the untouchable people, the people nobody wanted anything to do with. Jesus loved, Jesus embraced. Jesus spoke courageous truth to powerful people who didn't want to hear that truth. And these people became very angry and they didn't want to hear what Jesus had to say. And so they hung him on a cross to kill him. And then they buried his body in a tomb. And I'm sure they said to themselves, finally, there's an end to that. <laughs> you know, that's the last we'll see of this problem, they said. But of course, they were wrong. They were very, very wrong. Because on the third day, something way up above said to something way deep within, rise up, and he did. Turns out Jesus was not buried in that tomb. He was only planted. Now, I, I know we're just a Presbyterian church. We don't say amen. But if we weren't a Presbyterian church, somebody would have said amen at that point. So, <laughs> uh. 
a scholar by the name of N.T. Wright uh, made this observation. I think he's, he's so spot on. He said, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, if that didn't happen, we simply never would have heard of him. I believe that's right. Absolutely right. And in fact, if, if you think that Jesus wasn't raised from the cross, then you need to explain why we have heard of him. You see, tens of thousands of people, as a matter of historical fact, were killed by the Romans on a cross. That was nothing special. That was nothing new. It was an effective way to suppress rebellion. A good number of those people uh, in and around Palestine were would-be messiahs. They were people claiming to be deliverer of Israel, claiming to be the messiah. People who wanted to lead the nation of Israel in revolt against the nation of Rome. And of all these people, only the name of Jesus is widely known and remembered today. In fact, his name today is better known than any other name in all of human history. Why? You see, there is simply no other way to account for this than the resurrection. I'll tell you something else the resurrection helps us understand. There is no way to account for the sudden emergence or birth of this thing that we call the church. Uh, One day it did not exist, or at least the very few who had been following Jesus were cowering, you know, in upper rooms. They were hiding, but the next day it did exist. There's no way to explain that except through the resurrection. There's no way to explain how formerly terrified disciples, that's their own description of themselves, formerly terrified disciples were suddenly filled with a devotion so great they would brave torture, they would brave any form of persecution, even martyrdom for the sake of Jesus and Jesus' name. No explanation except to say they knew that the resurrection was true. He is risen. I was just trying to see if you were awake. (laughs) Friends, it's this one great fact, the resurrection, that gives us hope today. Hope for life after death. Hope for life right now. We human beings live at the intersection of hope and despair. That's the world we live in. It's a broken, fallen world. And so we're always at that intersection, hope and despair. There's a writer named Frederick Buechner who said this. He said, the resurrection means the worst thing is not the last thing. How good is that? The worst thing is not the last thing. The worst thing in this life, no matter what it is, no matter how bad, is never the last thing because Jesus came back from the dead. And because of that, sins can be forgiven and even our greatest enemy, death, can be overcome. And life eternal is possible, all because of the resurrection. But I got to say to you, none of this means anything if you don't respond to it. Uh, There's uh, the Apostle John at the beginning of a gospel that he wrote where he was telling the story of Jesus' life, says this, he says, Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him and many do not. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It was just underlining the point that we need to respond to who Jesus is. If any of this, if the resurrection is going to have any meaning at all in your life or mine. You see, someday you will get buried. Um, our world is just this way. 
And of course, ultimately, we all die. You will get buried. What Jesus taught is true of seeds, it was true of him, and it's true for you and me. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. It's only a single seed. Jesus also said, anyone who loves their life will lose it. That's an interesting thing. What exactly is Jesus saying? By loving their life, he's not saying anyone who embraces life, anyone who wants to live life to the full, that, that would delight Jesus. Believe me, what Jesus is talking about is actually something different. He's saying if you put your own self-interest first before everything else, if you put your own survival above the importance of everything else, if you make your ultimate goal to do what people generally do in our culture today, and that is climb the ladder higher and higher, get more accolades, more praise, more power, if you make it your goal to be just successful at any price, to live in comfort, to look after only yourself, well, you will be like the seed, frankly, that never gets planted. You will be barren. You will be fruitless. You will be stagnant. You will be alone. You will live a life that's largely purposeless. But there is a way to know true life, abundant life, the Bible calls it, purposeful life, life lived with God. And it's quite counterintuitive. It's not the way we might think we would discover that kind of life. I like how a little kid put it. A Sunday school teacher was trying to explain all this to a group of children in a classroom. You know, she was trying to tell them about God's grace and salvation and mercy and so. So she says to her classroom, can you go to heaven just by being a good person? And the kids have kind of been prepped for this. So they're like, no, 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 you can't. You know, can you get to heaven by going to church uh, enough? And all the kids, no, no, that's not going to get you to heaven. And well, can you get to heaven by giving enough money or doing good enough? Of deeds and the children are like no no well then she says what will get you to heaven and one little boy just kind of blurted out you know you have to die first <laughs> you didn't think it was any more funny than the first congregation here <laughs> I thought it was funny I think the little boy is making a good point you do have to die first you see unless a seed falls into the ground and dies Anybody who loves their life, if that's their number one priority. No, no, you have to die first. And that dying needs to start now, right now. And so question, how are you doing at dying? You know, the way to life is through death, says Jesus. Dying to my ego, dying to my sin, dying to my demand to have my own way, dying to my will and surrendering to the will of God. God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth in my life as it is in heaven. You see, I put my life in God's hands so that I can be spiritually speaking, born, reborn to a greater life and a greater self and a greater purpose through Jesus. The apostle Paul expressed this very thing um, one time and he expressed it very beautifully. He expressed it in these words. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Paul was at one time, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, um, he was an achiever, an overachiever. Uh, he was a persecutor of Christians. Uh, he hated Jesus. He hated people who followed Jesus. He hated the Romans who were oppressing the nation of Israel. He hated anyone and anything that wasn't pro-Israel. And uh, one day, Paul was on his way to a city, Damascus, to find people who followed Jesus, arrest them, bring them back to Jerusalem, put them on trial, and hopefully put them to death. And that was Paul. But on the way to Damascus, Paul has an experience. He meets Jesus in a vision. And that was really, really quite remarkable. In that vision, he came to understand what Jesus' death on the cross was all about. You see, Jesus was dying to pay for Paul's brokenness, Paul's sin. Jesus was dying to open the way for Paul to know all about God's love and God's goodness and God's truth and God's mercy and God's son, Jesus. Knowing Jesus changed Paul forever. That encounter and subsequent uh, doing of life with Jesus changed Paul forever. God brought healing. God brought hope. God brought peace and love and joy into Paul's life. Even though the circumstances of Paul's life were very often difficult. Very difficult. Paul, in fact, spent the, the remaining years of his life traveling and telling others about Jesus, the one that he had met, the one who had forgiven his sins. And here's the thing, God's ability to do that same thing, change us from the inside out, do that same thing in our lives is just extraordinary and no less available, no less powerful today than it was in Paul's day. What happened to Paul has been happening to millions of people for thousands of years and it can happen to you. It can happen to you. You can meet and know Jesus. You can give your life to Jesus. Jesus said, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. In other words, it produces much fruit. So here's the deal. You can hand your life over to Jesus. You can become a follower of Jesus right now, this morning. This is the day that you can make that decision if you want to. In fact, I invite you to do that. I encourage you to do that. I ask, um, well, in the first service, we made this opportunity available to people. We had over 14 folks commit their life to Jesus. And uh, that same opportunity is available to you if that is what you feel God is calling you to do. Uh, this is the most important decision a human being ever faces in light of Jesus' resurrection. I really believe that. So I'd ask you, if you would, would you, would you bow your head? Would you close your eyes? And if you want to come to a new life in Jesus Christ, if you want to belong to him, if you want Jesus to forgive your sin, to save you, to begin a process of mending the brokenness and fixing the sin that's inside, then I would just encourage you to use this simple prayer. Just say it and mean it. Say it from your heart.
God, I admit, I confess there is stuff inside me that I do not want and I cannot control. There's anger, there's bitterness, there's hatred, greed, lust, addiction, regret, guilt, failure, shame, all kinds of stuff in us. God, I'm laying it all down. I'm naming it. I'm turning from it, repenting of it. I'm asking you now to forgive me and cleanse me. I want what Jesus did on the cross to apply to me. God, I want to die to my old ego, my old self-centeredness, my old habits. And I want to come alive to you. I want Jesus to walk with me. I want Jesus, you to guide me, to be my friend, my forgiver, my leader, my savior from this day forward. And again, I just ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer, I'd ask you to just really uh, briefly, if you wouldn't mind raising your hands, I'd like to pray for you. If you prayed that prayer, if you made that decision, just raise your hands for a moment. I see you. You know, this is a way of expressing between you and God. God, I'm all in. I mean this. I mean business. Heavenly Father, I pray right now for every woman, every man who has in their hearts surrendered their life to you. I would ask you to help them, God. Help them find the right person, the right people to talk to, to keep growing in their faith. Help them to find that person who can begin to lead them on a path of grace, a path of salvation that only Jesus provides. I know that you'll do that, Lord. And God, I pray for everybody in this room who feels buried or who will feel buried. I pray the only hope that matters, the only life that counts, and the one name that stands above every other name will come to life in them. And we thank you, Father, in the name of our crucified and resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, I mean this. He is risen. He is risen Amen.